welcome to the Adventure Together podcast. In today's episode, Guy Miller talks to Mike Reeves, President and Professor at Union School of Theology. He is the author of Delighting in the Trinity, The Unquestionable Flame and Rejoice and Tremble. Well, it's really, really exciting to be able to chat to Mike Reeves today, who is the President of the Union School of Theology. Mike, I am so grateful that you've given up some time to chat to me and to the leaders of commission and uh, you're so welcome it'll be really good to hear from you and pick your brains a little bit about you mike in terms of what's currently going on in your life i'm just in the midst of reading this incredible book rejoice and tremble which we'll get on to a little bit later but uh, how's how's the last year been for you Thank you. Uh, just lovely to be with you, Guy. While there have been many challenges, I've spoken to a number of Christian leaders who found that in many ways, lockdown has been a time of great blessing. And I found that for myself. There have been many challenges, but there's been lovely opportunities to spend more time with family, to consciously lean in, to spend more time with the Lord. And I've, I've really valued that. That's been really precious. So, it, it, in many ways, I, I wouldn't change it. it there's been there've been real advantages, real privileges of this last year. Have you been reading much? Have you sp- had some good uh, books that you say this is a book? I would say every Christian pastor in commission should be reading at the moment, apart from obviously Rejoice and Tremble. I read through books at quite a rate. I've just finished Carl Truman's. I think it's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, which was were very helpful in helping to just understand where we're at in our culture at the moment. Really useful. And just heard that apparently there's going to be a shorter version coming out, a quicker little version. So that'll that'll probably be even more useful. I I forget what that's going to be called. I'm about a third of the way through it. And uh, I think it's fascinating uh, revelation, really, in terms of how we can arrive at statements like I'm a man inside a woman's body and trying to process that in in a modern world of what do you say to this? Understanding all the roots. I mean, he's clearly a, a great, great thinker. And do you know, there's someone I wished he'd included, though, which is Schleimacher. So as a theologian, I'm thinking I wished he'd look at Schleimacher, who's so deeply in our blood. Schleimacher, he's, he's the father of modern or liberal theology. And I think he's got into our blood. Schleimacher basically said all of theology is just talking about our feelings. So when I talk about any theology, really what I'm doing is I'm just describing how I feel. And hasn't that gone deep with us? That really everything I believe is just an expression of my own personal feelings. Wow. And in that vein then, uh, Mike, tell me a little bit about what drove you to write Rejoice and Tremble because – when I first heard about a book coming out on the fear of God, I was thinking to myself, we're living in an, a pandemic. We're living in an age where fear is all about us. Will, will we get out of this? Will our parents die? What, what's, it gonna, what's the world going to look like in a year's time? It, it seems like for most Christians, in a simplistic, emotional, philosophical way, may go, hang on. There's no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. Is this a book I should really be reading at a time like this? Yeah. Uh, I remember I I spoke to uh, Mike Pilavacci a couple of months ago, and he said he'd read some previous stuff of mine. And then he saw this one, 
saw it was a book on the fear of God, and and he said, "Uh oh, here we go, <laughs> here it comes," and and I, I think that gets exactly what I thought was some of the problem that, yeah, we live in a culture of fear, a, a, a culture of such quickly moving, shifting anxieties. You know, I latch on to something that I'm anxious about, knife crime, and then my my kids being kidnapped, um, and then global warming, and, and we shift from one thing to another. And so you see, we're an incredibly anxious culture, more anxious than I think we've ever been before. And the reason for that, I would suggest, is a cultural loss of the fear of God. But because we don't have the fear of God, we have anxieties blooming everywhere because there's nothing to rein them in. But our problem is, I think we've not understood what the fear of God is. And so the fear of God is spoken of as this thing that is like the flip side to the love of God. And so you have some constituencies where we talk about the love and grace of God, and some other constituencies look at that and go, now, hang on, we're told to fear God, so slow down a little bit on the grace and kindness and compassion. We're also supposed to be afraid of God, right? And what I wanted to try to do with that book is show that's not what the fear of God is in Scripture. The, the fear of God is the opposite of being afraid of God. So in Exodus 20, Moses says, when the Israelites are all terrified at Mount Sinai, um, Moses says, do not be afraid. The Lord has come to test you that the fear of the Lord may be on you. So the fear of the Lord is something that casts out being afraid. So what I wanted to really show is that the fear of God, which is what casts out our anxieties and our fears. It is the ultimate solution to our culture of fear. It's not something opposite to the love of God. It defines it. And maybe it defines it like this, in that our love changes according to the object of our love. So I, I love and have affection for my dogs. I love and have affection for my wife. And I love and have affection for my God. And each of those, I mean something slightly different because the object is different. And so when I love God, it is a, a love with a higher register to it. But when I love God, I, I'm not just thinking, oh, that's nice, like a cup of coffee. Uh, you know, wouldn't that be nice to have a slice of cake? No, when I love God, I wonder at him that he is so not just majestic and transcendent and great, but he's more compassionate, he's more loving, he's more merciful, he's more kind, more understanding than any I know. And the heights of his goodness to me cause me to wonder at who he is. And that is the heart of the fear of God. So fear of God is love for God as God. It's love for God defined. And, and you best get it, best get what the fear of God is when you're kneeling before the cross. And there at the cross, that's the deepest window into the heart of God. And there at the cross, you see, what am I that my sin is so serious? It's so much worse than I ever thought it was. And yet, what is he like that before I ever showed any willingness to turn to him, he would die for me. What a saviour. And so I'm, I'm left 
with this sort of John Bunyan called it this blessed confusion, where uh, where I'm I'm just wondering. I can sometimes be I can have these sweet tears in my eyes, and they are sweet tears because I'm almost confused at my reaction to him. I'm I'm trembling at the fact that he's had mercy on me as a sinner, and I'm wondering at him as so compassionate a saviour. That's the fear of God. And it's, a, it, it's we love so much that our, that we are caught up and overwhelmed by who he is and all of who he is. It's it's superb, Mike. I think I read it thinking I've got a handle on this. I would, I would I understand wrong fear, understand right fear. I think I'd have lent more into awe uh, in terms of an expression. But actually, what you showed in this book that actually there is multi-layered the fear of God. It's not a one-dimensional. Wow, he is the sovereign. Wow, he is the judge. Wow, he is the savior. A lot of it, the Bunyan quotes, a lot of it flow out of mercy, the understanding of divine grace and mercy that leads us into this incredible or beautiful aspect of what it means to fear God. And uh, I, th- I found it very, very helpful as, as, as a leader. And I thought I'd want to recommend it to everybody. So apart from writing, tell me a little bit how you have seen the last year. It's been rich for you. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of pastors, it has that would be true. True. I'm equally aware. I, I've spoken to a guy who leads another movement of churches who said something like a third of his pastors in lockdown had wanted to give up. They felt unable to handle the, the, the pressures of trying to put things online on the social media world and the, and the shifting changes of the world in, in a year, which has seen you know, George Floyd, the whole sexuality things, transgender things seems to be very in your face and very robust. I just wonder how you could help us or help pastors in this in this mad world in terms of finding their moorings, finding encouragement. What what are the, some of the lessons that you would want to pass on to us? My mind immediately goes to when Paul's speaking to the Ephesian elders and he says, "Keep watch over yourselves and over the flock of God." And I think our temptation is to quickly go to keep watch over the flock of God, not over ourselves. But what has happened over the last year has just exposed a lot of the problems um, that have already been there in our culture and in our individual spiritual lives. And I think that's that's shown itself in so many burnt out, tired, depressed pastors that, like you, I'm coming across so many stories here. And so it strikes me that as we think about dealing with this, the first thing to consider is how we might look after ourselves, especially because as we've been forced more online, and we're having, we're all used to having these kind of chats the whole time rather than face to face. The danger is that we're isolated, isolated from each other and from God. And in that personal isolation is it's an ideal breeding ground for hypocrisy where I can cultivate a public persona and that public persona in front of my church, in front of anyone else, it is increasingly divorced from the real me that my family will get to see. 
And so I think underneath all these issues of pastors struggling is something that's cutting to right the heart of our spiritual health. That's what we need to be focusing on. And and that's why I think the last 12 months or so has seen these two quite divergent stories. We're hearing a number of pastors saying, I found myself really refreshed, and a number saying, I really haven't. I'm the opposite. I'm depressed and burned out and discouraged. And there is a lot that is discouraging right now. understand that. But I think what we have to be doing is taking stock to ensure that right now our focus as individual Christians, before even being leaders, our focus is on the Lord himself. So that, so I wrote in the book a little bit about how the fear of God is the only fear that casts out other fears, that casts out our anxieties. And it's it's that, whether we're talking about the fear of God or just simply healthy Christian living, there's, there's that need to be able to be walking closely with the Lord so that I can actually lead people with integrity rather than simply putting on a face and thinking, what's the most efficient way to do it? Because if we get all all the practicalities right, but the inner reality of spiritual health is missing, then there are going to be huge consequences. I fear over the next few years, all sorts is going to come out from under the carpet of, of stuff that's festered over this last year or so, but we won't be aware of it fully yet. And do you think, I mean, obviously we've had high profile church leaders, we've had the horrible RZIM type stuff where you, it's easy to look, to finger point, to attribute blame. Do you think there are some takeaways to church leaders today, some indicators on their spiritual dashboard to be looking at at a time like this and saying, actually, this is out of sync and I need to adjust my lifestyle? What, what would they be What, in your thinking? What are the things that are telltale warning signs of getting into unreality? Because it's such a it is a difficult world. You know, I, I think the social media world and what it means to be an author, people buying your books, people liking your comments, downloading your sermons, how many people you have at church, how many people you've seen saved, all these these are numbers by which often church leaders relate to one another and they're not healthy necessarily because it's it's very much a success in a, a worldly sort of I, I've got more than you have type of measurement rather than a, a humble walking with God type measurement. So, so help us just try and think through some of the indicators on our panel, our spiritual panel that we should be looking at at a time like this. Um, the kind of conversation that's slightly worrying me at the moment as people are asking those sorts of questions is that people are talking about all the safeguarding practices necessary which is right. Hear me right. That that is right that we do. But my fear is that the conversation stops there. And we're just thinking about what are the fences that we can put around our practices to make sure that something couldn't happen. But of course, we're good liars. And we're good at manipulating processes. So you can get around them. Ravi Zacharias clearly did. So so I think while it's good to have those conversations, we need to be responsible to be doing something deeper. 
and to be asking about exactly what you're asking for, those marks of positive spiritual health and the warnings that it might not be there. And so I'd come back to looking at, say, Matthew 23, Jesus' woes on the Pharisees, where, where he looks at them and says, you're whitewashed tombs. So on the outside, everything looks great, which would mean everything seems to be successful in your church. Everything seems to be going out. And yet inside you're dead, which is terrifying to hear. And for that's what we need to be looking for, is not those external indicators, which might indicate that we're being very successful Pharisees. We need to be looking instead to what are the indications that I'm actually growing in Christ-likeness. I'm actually loving the Lord more here. And, and so some of the key indicators of that would be Personally, have you lost your own amazement? Not, not your own knowledge of, but amazement at Christ's grace towards you, a sinner? Or is that just old news to pass on to other people? Something I think that, that, that's also worth watching is, are you cut off from others? There's a little spiritual indicator in terms of how you actually react to the Lord amazement at him but there's another little indicator how personally cut off are you and what seems to be the case with a number of these leaders that we've seen these catastrophic falls from grace happening i was close to a story like this not not very close but close enough a pastor i knew for many years this is 20 years ago catastrophically fell and no one knew there was no um, indication, apart from the fact that he looked like he was a bit off for a couple of years. And we thought there's something funny here, but maybe he's just tired. And and I think what was going on there in his case, and what I think I'm, I'm seeing again and again with other leaders, is they're very cut off. You've not actually got real friends around you. Fellowship is mechanical and functional. And you might even have an accountability group, which is chemical and functional, but you're not actually having warm brotherhood around you, good friends who actually know you and can support you and you can be honest with. And, and that's helping ensure that there isn't that gap between persona and reality happening, where you can actually talk about how you actually are doing, you personally with the Lord, not just how things going in your church. Sam, Sam Albury said an interesting thing. He talked about the gap between knowing ourselves and others knowing us and success and saying it, you can't have both. I've often had comments made about me and Heather and I, Heather and I, as people say you're very ordinary. I know whenever that's been said, and it has been said a number of times, there is something in me that wants to prove them wrong, that wants to be more than God's made me, that wants to grab a, a title or grab a, a statistic or a number to try and be, be, I mean, you hear the even language amongst Christians playing with the big boys, the big churches, the, the, the mega churches, that these are the, the top players. And, and it's all around us. And, and, and how do you guard that so that you aren't, 
pulled into a world which becomes increasingly a pretense because you can't keep it up. How, how do you guard against that? How do, how do you keep your feet on the ground in a world which is clamoring for success mm-hmm. and a Christian world as well? You know, the the, the video, audio visual world, it's, it's beautiful people. It's very articulate people, clever people. How do you, how do we, how do we keep grounded as leaders? John Spurgeon said, God rarely grants a man public success in ministry without giving him a private cross to bear, lest his head should spin. So God looks after us, and, and you see men who are given extraordinary success and fruitfulness in ministry. But what usually does seem to be the case is there is some reason that we won't be aware of that means that they're constantly humbled and therefore they can handle it. And often that cause is painful and difficult. And so they're very aware of their own limitations, even if others aren't. And so it stops them getting big headed. And in a sense, there's not much we can do about that. But what we can do is ensure, and here I think we do know ourselves, what's your motivation for going into this? So if you want to play with the big boys, why? What is it? Is it that you're seeking true gospel partnership with fellow brothers that uh, share your heartbeat, your love for Christ, and you think that with them, we might be able to reach more people for Christ? Is that it? And I know we're all confused in our motivations. Of course we are. Or is it you're thinking, I can use them? So are you enjoying them as Christian brothers or are you using them? I think you'll know. Yeah. And partnerships are really important. I mean, we're very excited um, about the partnership with Union and, and Commission in terms of training. I'm hoping it's going well. And Some of the students aren't you thinking, oh, that student, I'm going to pull my hair out. Uh, how, how, how do you see that developing? How, how, how's your read of it? We, we seem from Tim. Tim seems very encouraged. I think it's something which will grow in the future. But I just wondered from your perspective, how you see that working into the future. I'm absolutely thrilled by it. Absolutely thrilled. And and I'm the same. I, I would love to see it grow. I don't quite know how it will. And I'm, I'm happy that I don't quite know how it will. So, so I, I don't have a grand master plan for how it should look. But, but it seems to be so healthy. I love seeing a partnership between different organisations, different different fellowships particularly when they look like from the outside world they might be coming from slightly different places and we're able to show no no we're actually real fond brothers in christ and we we share the same passions and convictions and and so we're demonstrating the truth of the gospel here not not that we're just a little Christian sect or partisan club. No, no, we're, we're all about the gospel. And it's so important. It, it, it's showing how the gospel unifies us. And it's it's working to raise up the leaders that we've got to see for the next generation. And, and that's so, so to see unity in the gospel, working together to produce a next generation of healthy leaders Church-based, where where 
um, looking to see leaders who are scripture-soaked, who love the Lord, who, who want to be real servants of the church and not just big boys. That's so healthy. And, and so so I, I think this is a wonderful start. And I hope it's just a small start for something ex- exciting that could be, who knows what the Lord has planned, but I would love to see it grow. No, that sounds fantastic. And you've touched upon something there, which I'd love to just, to just dig a little bit deeper into. You're a man who seems to be able to walk in uh, into a number of different worlds. I mean, your history out of All Souls, UCCF, you've, you, you, you seem to be able to bridge a lot of uh, camps or um, streams that might hold quite divergent theological positions. And yet a man who is convinced of scripture and of truth. And obviously you wanted to impart training so that there would be greater unity and understanding across the body of Christ. How, how do we do that in terms of holding strong theological convictions mm-hmm. and yet working alongside people who may be uh, simplistically, you may have egalitarian or complementarian or reformed, charismatic. How, how do you how do you do that yourself? And how how can we learn from that in terms of we want to be a blessing to the whole body of Christ? We're not just interested in what Commission's doing. We're, we're wanting to play our part in London and in the UK. How, how do you do it? I think the Book of Romans is the model. And it's so important, so important as a testimony to the gospel today to to show we are truly people of the gospel. And that's what's uniting us. So what what you see in Romans is, if if I can break it down maybe a little simplistically, Romans 1 to 11, Paul says, there's the gospel. So you, you have Romans 1 to 4 is, here's the work of Christ the completely sufficient saviour, which means that you can be saved, you could justified by faith alone. Five to eight, here's the work of the Spirit. You, you need to be born again, and this is what it looks like when you're, you're taken out of Adam and united to Christ, and, and you have a new identity in Christ. This is what it looks like. And then Romans 9 to 11 is, I, th- I think it's really fundamentally about standing on Scripture. It's, it's answering that question, Romans 9, 6, has God's word failed? Saying, no, no, we can really stand on scripture. So let's, let's deal with that question. So, so I think it's saying, look, here's the gospel where people who stand on scripture, scripture's supreme for us. We believe in the complete sufficiency of Christ as our saviour and therefore justification by faith alone. We don't need to add to anything he's done. And we have to... Uh, we depend on, we're hopeless without the Spirit's work to give us new life. Now, that's the gospel. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Now, as Paul sees it, you cannot depart from the gospel. So Galatians 1, you depart from the gospel and Paul will go for it and say, I'm amazed at how quickly you're departing from this gospel to another gospel, which is really no gospel at all. But then, but in Romans from Romans 12 on, he then looks at a whole load of differences Christians have over days of rest, things to eat, and so on. And his emphasis there is, now, we've got the gospel we all agree on. That's where we find unity. But beware of those who put stumbling blocks in front of others. Love one another with brotherly affection. Don't fall out over those other 
often sometimes important differences. And I think getting those things right is something that is going to be critical for the health of the church in the next generation. Are we people of Romans 1 to 11? We're just people of the gospel. And now we believe more than the gospel. So we believe specific things about baptism and how the church runs and so on. But we can disagree on those things and not fall out as people of the gospel together. And I think we, we've got to get clear on If we can be clear on what it means to be people of the gospel, then we can say, brother, I stand with you and my heart beats with yours as a fellow saved person of the gospel. We've got different views on whatever it is, rest day, things to eat. That's okay. You hold your position. I think you're wrong, but we're still brothers. We can even debate those things. We're still brothers and, and we'll fight for each other, not against each other. So let's talk about one thing that is obviously debatable at the moment. And uh, it's been interesting just to get soundings from different people in terms of online church, because it seems like a... In some ways, we were all forced to it. Uh, COVID pushed us into, well, what do we do now? How do we connect? How do we contact one another? And for some, it's been a real blessing, uh, a wonderful revelation. Now they can access uh, the ministry. They can access encouragement. And for others, it seems to be like, now this is the future wholesale, abandoned, real, living, breathing people meeting together on a Sunday morning or in the midweek. Let's put everything into this online. And again, it, it creates a tension in, in, in a number of leaders going, it's irrelevant, or this is something actually has good elements to it that we want to learn from and maybe can use going forward. How, how are you reading that sort of debate? I, I wonder if some of the debate um, is age-defined, that we tend to get more suspicious of technology as we get older. And the technology we're less familiar with, we tend to be more suspicious of. So the younger generation are going, great, the older generation is suspicious. And and so technology um, is is something that's always going to have its pros and cons. And, and the older generation need to recognize it really will have its pros. You can see all the cons and you're probably right on those, on those downsides, but it does have its advantages. And the younger generation that, that see all the advantages need to recognize, yeah, there are also disadvantages. And so to be a simple-minded man, I, I think I, I see what we've got here. There are lovely advantages to the ability to be able to communicate with the technology we've got today. Let's, let's use that all we can for, for people who we just can't access in any other way. We, we, we can't have the relationships in any other way. Wonderful. Let's use this. But to be purely online is not the same as actually meeting together. And that works for the Church of God as a congregation, an assembly, and it even works individually, just one-on-one, -on -one, that for me to talk to you like this and for others to be able to hear us is not the same for us actually to be in the same room together. And I can't pastor you in the same way as when we actually sit together 
and I can just actually just sort of get a read on how things are. I can see what's going on in your, in your eyes a little bit more. Where your your eyes flick when I mention something. I can just go, could just let's just pick up on what I said there. Maybe you didn't quite get that, and it's harder to do that online. So, so I think let's embrace the technology and recognise its usefulness in, in many situations. Let's not abandon it. But equally, we do need to be clear on what the church is. And, and so we don't want to say church can be a purely virtual thing long term. That it, it's, it is healthy for us to be together, for us to sing together, to, to, to hear God's word preached together, for us to speak to each other together. And and so I think we, we want to get back to personal, real fellowship in the same room as each other while carrying on using the technology where we can. So if, if you were to liken the last year to a, a moment of transition, so the children of Israel crossing over and leaving behind the desert, leaving behind Egypt, are there things that you would see that, I mean, we talked earlier, didn't we, of, of, the, of having a reputation, you know, the, the Revelation 3, you've got a reputation of being alive but are dead. The church or leaders can have a persona that looks good on a camera, but actually spiritually they're not alive to the spirit and the presence of God. Are there things you've seen in the last five years and over this period of thought, actually, I wouldn't be surprised if God was speaking to his church, particularly with, we're living in the West, particularly in the West with some of our stuff we've been doing and saying, actually, maybe we need to leave that behind in order to be able to embrace something of the new opportunities that we have now with the gospel. Yes, I, I think, as I see it in many ways, this last year looks to me like a time of pruning by the Lord, that it's a time of exposing a lot of problems. So it, it's, it's challenging us to think, how could we do things differently? Might there be some ways that we, we can improve or, for example, to evangelize people who, who are never going to walk in through the church door? There are opportunities here. But, it, but it's also, it is exposing the slick, empty professionalism. And that's where you're seeing some of the, so many of these cases of not only Christians who've got a um, spiritual atrophy, but also leaders who are increasingly exposed as running dry or empty. And it's that that I think is the most important thing for us to be pressing into, to, to see what has been exposed here about the sicknesses that we have, and therefore what work do we need to do on our spiritual health before we even think about use of technology to be more efficient. It, it, what's been exposed is the biggest question for us to deal with. And what about the opportunities alongside that? So I think you're right. I think it has been a time of pruning for all of us. I think 
I think for myself, I think the intimacy, the prayer, personal, but also corporate, I think online prayer meetings, our numbers here at chapel, across our movement, people would say we're definitely praying more, more people are accessing prayer. Um, what opportunities do you see for the gospel in, in this more hybrid world as we move forward so yes we've the older the older generation getting used to living more with the social media with the internet live streaming what opportunities does that give us in terms of sharing our faith and and reaching our neighbors I, I remember um, when starting to change how union was um, delivering our teaching. I was reading about a lady who was burned in Mecca for listening to sermons while hiding um, in her wardrobe in her house. And it was the only way she could access any Christian teaching. And it did make me think, well, you have these large swathes of the world where access to really good Christian teaching, faithful proclamation of the gospel is so hard to come by. Here's an opportunity for us to, to lean in and use the technology we've got to be able to make Jesus better known worldwide. And so one of the things we've done is to say, well, we can be having teaching hubs where people are learning um, we're opening them in Brazil and Chile this year. Um, we've got them in Athens and Rome. And we, I just couldn't be flying around going to all these places in person. And yet it's not quite so ideal. I, I would rather be there in person to teach them, but but it's far better than not giving them anything. So I think that, and so that's just our, our story. But I think you, you'd see stories of churches right across the world where they're being listened to in places they just weren't before there's an opportunity for us to press into can we can we get the gospel heard in places where it was almost impossible to be heard a few years ago and have you got anything in india i mean i'm aware even doing these videos we uh, over half the churches uh, in commission are from Asia, and uh, you know, there's over 200 churches we have in, in India, for instance, and the gospel is running and running in that nation. But again, biblical literacy and understanding. Um, ha have you got things there that you, or, or would you have wisdom in terms of how to strengthen? We we don't, but I would love to. Um, and so, so where we're at is in a process of expansion. Um, of of just trying to reach out little bit by little bit as we can, as we're learning how to, as the partnerships grow, as we go. Okay, we can work with you. Let's let's see what we can do. Um, but but that is where I would love to go is to be able to say, let's let's step into a situation like in India and partner with some like minded brothers and sisters there, that we can deliver something with them that they couldn't do by themselves. I, I would love to do that. And and there's really very little reason why we couldn't. The, the technology's there. And how do you, how do you, I mean, I'm slightly digressing, but I can remember a friend of mine who leads another part of New Frontiers talking about systematic theology versus a biblical theology and how 
all of our, our, our heavyweight commentaries are from a Western perspective. We want to help people in, in, in two-thirds world in terms of trying to develop their understanding of the Bible, but a lot of them are coming out of a less educated world. How do we help them? What I want to see um, for us is I don't want to see Brits trying to teach the world. So it's a step-by-step process, but I'm looking for Africans and Asians and South Americans and, and others, people from all continents, doing the teaching so that we've got multinational teaching to a multinational um, setting. Now, that itself isn't very easy. So, so I see in places where I've got contacts in Africa and Asia, they don't have loads of the theologians who can do that writing, could be writing the systematic theology. So one of the things I'm working at is a scholarship program to raise these guys up to deliberately say, we do everything we can to give you a head start so we can get you all the way through, not only educated, but let's give you some writing opportunities so you can know how to do this. Let's actually make sure we publish a first book for you. So we're, we're starting a union publishing, partly with an aim to do that, to be able to get writers who aren't yet writing, writing well so that we can raise up those theologians so that a great standard of biblical systematic theology can be taught, but not from an exclusively Western perspective. Because because what I find is you find a Korean theologian can have the same theology, but he'll just come at it from a different angle and say a different thing. And something that we can spot as ungospel in a Korean culture, he can spot as profoundly ungospel in our culture, but we were blind to it. And so it's back to Romans again. There's that, that, that necessity for partnering together and being people of the gospel rather than people of a Western culture if we're to be healthy as Christians. Very good. And and in terms of how we are addressing the cultural our own cultural issues i'd love to hear your thoughts i I think a number of pastors are that i've been in contact with in the last six months in a world which is being exposed to black lives matter sexuality transgenderism gender fluidity a lot of them are saying batten down the hatches we're white british we're living in rural situations where we're not being rubbed up against these things other than switching on the BBC or the ITV, you know, news. What's your advice to pastors today? The first thing is to ensure our faithfulness to the biblical gospel, not necessarily our awareness of where the culture is at. And being international will help us in this. So I find, speak to African pastors and they can say, look, some of those issues of sexuality just don't figure here. With us, it's polygamy. That's the issue we've got to face. So we've got one gospel that's addressing these very different situations. And so you can be faithful without being up to date on exactly why the culture's at where it's at. It is useful to know why the culture's where it's at. But but it's more important to be faithful to the biblical gospel and to know why is it that God created us male and female? Why is that good news 
to be warmly and boldly proclaimed. Um, why does that chime with um, how God how God has shaped the very nature of the gospel? That you have the story of the bridegroom who comes to love his bride, um, and so the first thing is to ensure that we're being faithful to the gospel. Second, being international as the body of Christ helps us to see those things that are cultural and helps us to see our own cultural blind spots where we're just being sucked into the culture. And then it's good to read up on the specific cultural challenges that we've got, but they vary around the world. That's true. And I'd love to know what you do in terms of keeping yourself motivated, encouraged in God, because I think I said said to Heather last week, I think my diet of listening, my my habit would be to switch on the six o'clock news and watch the news. And then often when there was the COVID reports, you'd often, oh, there's a COVID report. And I found my emotional tanks empty. I found my spiritual faith levels drained. And Having spending time for me in the word, spending time walking and praying in the sun in the sunshine. We've got some sunshine now. You feel replenished and refreshed. I just wondered how you do that yourself, and are there are there things you can help other leaders with? I, I think the key has got to be ensure that your perspective is filled more by scripture, filled more by Christ than it is by the news. Now, how exactly you do that, in a sense, I, I'm not interested in particularly laying down specific laws to say this is how you do it, but it's a, it's a matter of perspective. And, and it's difficult to maintain that perspective in a world where, you know, you, you just find, uh, here, here's my, here's my, um, alarm clock in the morning. And so I just find that I flick on the news very quickly. And the first thing that's gone through my head is, COVID cases rather than God's promises. And that I think has got to be a prime challenge. Ensure your perspective is right and is set by scripture, set by the gospel, so that you read all the challenges of the day through and under the light of that big perspective of scripture. So you see, I mean, this is how Jesus constantly is talking to his disciples when he's saying, don't worry. He's saying, put the kingdom first and all these things will be added to you. It's, it's ensure that the kingdom perspective comes first and you read everything else in its light. And to ensure that kingdom perspective, I think means it is helpful to say, aim first of all and last of all to go to scripture and not the news in every day, but also ensure that you're being stretched. As of, I don't want to quite say every day because that, that can be really hard to do, but every week to ensure that you're being pushed deeper into gospel waters rather than thinking, my knowledge of the gospel is basically there and and I can coast along on that, which is very easy to do. Or any reading that I do is basically a preparation for the next sermon. So in a sense, I, I would say always ensure not only are you soaking yourself in scripture every day, but every week be reading something that is not relevant to your next sermon. 
Yeah, what would your book that's probably most encouraged your own individual, as you say, I, I think we all fall into the trap of reading uh, books for the next sermon or for the next leadership meeting I've got to do to be inspired, but to read for ourselves, what book or books have you read that you say, this is a go-to that I really encourage every pastor for themselves to read? Rather than having one book, I'd say The Puritans. I'd say make friends with the Puritans. And the reason I'd say that is because there's rich theology that's so devotionally applied. And so you can't just grow as a geek. You you can't just know, all right, I've I've filled in my knowledge now of um, fifth century Nicene theology and aren't I clever? Rather, you've got to know Christ better and you worship him. Wonderful. That's really good. It's funny. Everyone's everyone's been talking about gentle and lowly, and uh, this has been a book that seems to take take gentle and lowly. Gentle and lowly. I'm good friends with Dane, and I would say this to his face: gentle and lowly is just riffing off Thomas Goodwin, and 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 he says that in the book. He's, He's 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 straight up about it. So read someone like a Thomas Goodwin or a Richard Sibbs or a John Owen and get a few of their works. And what Dane had done for Gentle and Lowly is he spent 10 years just reading through Thomas Goodwin, soaking in Thomas Goodwin. And that's where it all came from. And so I'd say, yes, absolutely. Something like Gentle and Lowly, wonderful, wonderful book, read it. But but I'd say, go beyond that get into Thomas Goodwin, read Richard Sibbs, read John Owen, and then in a sense, get into the deeper waters that feed all that more richly. That is brilliant. And of course, you must, I mean, in, in Rejoice and Tremble, John Bunyan's clearly influenced your understanding of that subject and, again, a wonderful writer. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, so, and, and, and with those guys, you can have friends for life. So I'd say buy a few Puritans, where it's Puritan paperbacks or buy a set of one guy, just dive into those guys and make them your friends who'll stand alongside you even when you feel isolated. Wonderful. Well, that's really great advice. And it's been a joy to speak to you, Mike. Really appreciate you taking the time out to do this. I feel there's a lot ahead of us in our togetherness that God has. And uh, it's just been a real blessing to me. Great to be with you, Guy. Good to be with you. God bless you. God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the adventure together podcast if you enjoyed it don't forget to subscribe to find out more about commission visit www.commission.global